Brad Sobolewski for Pem Kearns, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm sitting down today with Todd Florin, one of the faculty physicians at Cincinnati Children's in the Division of Emergency Medicine, and Todd knows a thing or two about bronchiolitis. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brad. Great to be here. So before we move on, Todd, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are? Sure. I am Assistant Professor of Pediatrics uh, in the Division of Emergency Medicine here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Uh, my research in- interests are focused on lower respiratory tract infections, so bronchiolitis and pneumonia, and looking at ways of improving diagnosis and management. We don't see any bronchiolitis during the winter anymore. It's a very uncommon it's disease. It's pretty rare. It's yeah. almost, you know, it's sort of like polio. It's yeah. almost been eradicated. Yeah. So, so definitely an esoteric topic. Definitely. To I think, you know, pretty rare. So, you know, speaking about bronchiolitis in general, it, it is a frustrating illness, and there's not a lot of treatments that seem to work for it. Hypertonic saline is one that's come up in the literature as of late. And so why is this something that is at least hypothesized to, to help babies out? Yeah, bronchiolitis is really frustrating in that we really don't have any good options. And um, so as you alluded to, hypertonic saline had a great start, a nice early start, uh, in that some early studies seem to show promise. And it's thought that by introducing a high salt concentration into the airways, that essentially you take uh, water out of those swollen edematous bronchiolar walls, bring it into the airway lumen, and then that water loosens up, makes the mucus that's sitting and plugging those bronchioles less viscous. So it sort of helps it to be to loosen it up and then ultimately helps the infant to cough, cough that looser mucus up. So do you just go ahead and throw it into a little nebulizer chamber? Or? It's actually pretty simple. So, I mean, most studies have looked at anywhere from 2.5 to 4 mLs of uh, saline solution. You put it into a nebulizer chamber, a uh, jet nebulizer, attach it to the wall, and a lot of studies have used a flow rate of 6 to 8 liters per minute, um, you know, oxygen flow rate. Got it. So I see it used variably both in institution and uh, across different facilities. And so what's kind of the current state of evidence on the use of hypertonic saline and bronchiolitis? So the first Cochrane review on this was published in 2008, and that looked at sort of the first four trials, none of which were done in the United States or the United Kingdom. They were done basically, I think, Israel, United Arab Emirates, and one in Canada. And those studies seemed promising. And, And then as more studies have sort of come out, The latest Cochrane review that was published in 2013 looked at six inpatient trials, a total of 500 kids, hospitalized children, and found that there was a mean difference of 1.15 days, not an insignificant number, uh, in terms of decreased length of stay with kids who received hypertonic saline while they were hospitalized. In addition, it seems that post-inhalation clinical severity scores at 30 minutes post-inhalation were also favoring hypertonic saline over normal saline. So that was the initial evidence. And then when it comes to the ED, what have we learned about it recently? Well, things are a-changing in the hypertonic saline uh, uh, arena here. So in the ED, there are now, I want to say, four or five studies that have looked at this in the emergency department setting. And what the studies generally seem to show is that there is no short-term benefit to giving hypertonic saline in the emergency department setting. The challenge with interpreting all of these studies is sort of the heterogeneous methods that have been used. 
And that's where you really have to rely on your meta-analyses to be able to combine data of these small trials with somewhat heterogeneous methods. Yeah, and I saw that there have been a few randomized control trials, one of them written by a guy named Florin, um, along with some <laughs> other authors. And uh, interestingly, these had all of their patients pre-treated with albuterol before they went ahead and got the hypertonic saline. You know, How did that impact what went on now that the AAP has come out and said, well, you don't really need to give albuterol as a first-line treatment to bronchiolitis. Right. So that is one of the challenges is sort of, I would go even further to say it's bigger than albuterol because if you look at all of the trials that have been done with hypertonic saline, they all use different bronchodilators. So that's part of the challenge of, of interpreting this evidence is you've got some of the early ones that are using terbutaline, and then you've got racemic epinephrine, and then you've got albuterol. Sometimes the saline is mixed with the albuterol and the racemic epinephrine. Maybe Sometimes it's a, a cup of coffee. I mean, you just never, you know, it's, so it's, it's really, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of heterogeneity there. Now, I think the reason that our study and um, Dr. Wu's study at UCLA used sort of a pretreatment with albuterol. We tried to avoid mixing the albuterol with the saline so that we were not getting the effects of both medications at the same time. So I think both studies pretreated with albuterol, and that's because of the theoretical concerns of bronchospasm with hypertonic saline. So there was, and that data came from actually the asthma literature where. Um, they found that kids that received hypertonic saline had a lower FEV1 than kids who did not. And so it was thought to precipitate bronchospasm. Now, what's interesting is that more studies have come out now that have not used a bronchodilator at all. Um, there was one that was published in Thorax at the end of 2014, um, and another one that was presented at the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting that used no bronchodilator. And basically, it's been found that it's been pretty safe without giving a concomitant bronchodilator. But certainly, when you give albuterol with, the, with this, whenever you give another drug, you worry about potential confounding effects of that. However, in both Dr. Wu's study and in our study, every patient in the study received the same dose of albuterol. So theoretically, the effect of the randomization should be that you're starting with the same population at baseline. Yeah. And so it shouldn't be that the albuterol affects one or the other. Yeah, whether it worked or not, they all got it. They all got it. Yeah. So they all started at the same spot. But yes, there is the theoretical anecdotal uh, concerns that albuterol might work in some patients. And so then there's those concerns. But theoretically, those patients that it works in should be evenly split between yeah. two groups. That's the function of randomization. Yeah dealing with known and unknown confounders and balancing them between the groups. Who do you think that we're on the cusp of getting enough data to get a good meta-analysis or something that could really help us answer that question? You know, I think that what this, actually this data, it's frustrating for clinicians to get this kind of conflicting data because you sort of say, you know, what's up with these crazy researchers? You know, they are sort of, we, we ask giving that us question all the time. All the time. Yeah, so. All the time. Um, I'm asked that regularly by people here in this division. Yeah. But it's sort of, you know, you get these conflicting results in it, and it's very frustrating, I think, on the clinical front to make decisions. But that is where I think meta-analyses have to be viewed as sort of living, organic documents. You can't just publish a meta-analysis and say that that is going to be the definitive results when another four or five trials come out. So I think probably what, what it really needs is that 2013 Cochrane meta-analysis needs to now be 
redone with the data from our study, from Dr. Wu's study, from other studies, the thorax study that came out. And I bet that we're going to start seeing some differences in the results as, as more evidence comes out. But that's research. We yep. search and we search again. Yep. You know, I like to say that a lot. Cheesy, and, and cheesy then, as it is. And then research. After, after we're done here, he's going to go do some research. So <laughs> um, now, now that we, we don't have a, a final answer yet, but let me kind of propose two scenarios that everybody that listens is probably familiar with. The first one is you've got an ill-looking baby with bronchiolitis. Like this is a child who might need intubation. They've got significant respiratory distress, retractions down to their vertebra, and you want to do something to, to help them out. You know, you're considering high flow or positive pressure. You've suctioned them out and gotten out a gallon of snot. You know, is hypertonic saline or any of the other inhaled treatments, you know, one that you would recommend going with as a trial to help this kid out? That's the million-dollar question, I think. Um, and I don't think that we have evidence to suggest that any of these therapies are... Um, going to be close to uniformly effective in that severe bronchiolitis, uh, that severe, that infant with severe bronchiolitis. I think that the answer is I would not use hypertonic saline based off of the current evidence. If anything, what the evidence is showing about hypertonic saline is that it's effective when given early in a hospitalization, given at some regular interval, whether that's Q6 or Q8, and for the duration of the hospitalization, in kids who generally stay longer than four days, and that is in the that is in the 72 hours, I think is what what the AAP guideline says, because when all the studies that have shown benefit in hypertonic saline have been in the studies where the median and mean length of stay is between three and a half and seven days, yeah, and that might be different from facility to facility and comfort with illness and. Correct. Elevation and who knows, yeah. But for the most yeah. part, for American uh, pediatric institutions, the, the mean length of stay is about two and a half to three days, which yeah. is shorter than the studies that have shown benefit. Yeah, so really those patients where you think that they're going to have a longer stay, you might want to pull the trigger and get them on a pattern of, of getting it regularly. That's that's it. I mean, and, and, we, and that's, there's still so much, we don't even know if that's necessarily the right way to go. But going back to your original question, I would not give hypertonic for a kid in extremis in your trauma bay or resuscitation bay with severe bronchiolitis. So now the question is albuterol and racemic epinephrine. If you look at the, the data there, racemic epi has been shown to be slightly better than albuterol at improving clinical symptom scores. So if there's any inhaled agent that you would try in the severe situation, my preference based off of the literature would be racemic epinephrine. Though some would argue in looking at that data that none of these inhaled treatments is truly appropriate. Now, as more and more data comes out about positive pressure, I think that the use of high-flow nasal cannula is a question that I think a lot of people are interested in, that a lot of people feel anecdotally improves uh, clinical symptoms you know, on that, severe, on that severe spectrum. But there's been no definitive, compelling evidence to have us change our practice around high flow or not high flow uh, at the current time. Yeah, certainly it does not prevent intubation. Studies have shown that rates of intubations declined while it became more in vogue and used in the facilities, but it doesn't necessarily suggest a causation 
right and actually a a lot of the high flow i mean a lot of the high flow studies have either been retrospective or the ones that have been prospective have been a small sample size in a very specific population there's been no randomized clinical trials looking at high flow nasal cannula and therefore the jury is still out and the latest aap guidelines for bronchiolitis actually acknowledge that they purposely did not mention high flow nasal cannula because there's insufficient data to yeah. really make a, a recommendation yeah. about its and use. You can't use it everywhere. You can't pull it it's, out in an office setting or an urgent care setting. Or, correct. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's labor-intensive, and it does have its potential adverse effects whenever you're introducing rates mm-hmm. of positive pressure yeah. you know, into an infant's uh, lungs. Yeah, especially tiny little babies. And you know, I, I think echoing back to that AAP you know, guideline and the other therapies, my final question really centers around albuterol. And, and back when I was an intern. I guess I'm old enough to say that now. Albuterol was given to many bronchiolytics, and maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Usually just made the baby scream because we had to hold them down. And now the AAP has said, well, don't give bronchiolitis patients albuterol in in most cases. But still, there may be certain patients that it works on, or there may not. I don't know who has bronchospasm. Sometimes they get it at a doctor's office in another facility. And it's still very murky to me. So, you know, first of all, if a kid has gotten bronch, you know, kid with bronchiolitis has gotten albuterol, how do we know if it actually helped them? <laughs> yes. So, obviously, the best answer is going to be some objective respiratory scoring system. And I think this day and age, if you are going to give albuterol, you should be using a validated scoring system to score them before you give it and then 15 minutes after you give it. And, you know, you should be seeing not a one-point improvement, but you should probably be seeing at least a two- or three-point improvement in that fairly objective, validated respiratory score for you to say that there was a response. We know that kids who receive a quote-unquote trial of albuterol are more likely to be continued on albuterol Whether or not it helps. Whether or not it helps. And what that does is it has a real negative downstream effect. It confuses parents because their their, their parents now think that albuterol works and it's a medication that they must give whenever their their child uh, comes in with wheezing. It, they think that their child has asthma when in fact their child has bronchiolitis or viral induced wheezing. And so, and it's, exposes their child to undue side effects, flushing, tachycardia, and its increased resource utilization. So the downstream effects of giving albuterol, there's actually quite a few, even a single trial of albuterol. So I think if you're going to do a trial, it has to be very carefully monitored. Now, you might have the kid that comes in from the primary care office and they received an albuterol in the office setting, and the mom says, oh, it worked. So I think it's probably our job to try to parse out what was it about that that she felt that it worked. Mm-hmm. We know that giving any nebulized treatment to a kid with bronchiolitis has the potential to, um, to cause some transient improvement mm-hmm. that does not last very long. Yeah. What we oftentimes forget is that giving these therapies could also cause a transient deterioration because you've now increased VQ mismatch, and oftentimes kids who are given albuterol, even if it doesn't quote-unquote work, now desaturate because they've received albuterol, have this transient VQ mismatch, and now the ER physician is left wringing their hands saying, 
I see a saturation of 86%. Yeah. Do I need to admit this child? And we know that pulse oximetry is a leading driver of the decision to yeah. admit children with bronchiolitis. Yeah. We'll add that to the list of downstream effects of giving albuterol. Yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, as a trial, you know, that's you consider like the happy wheezer, the child who's smiling and not noisy, but when they get mad, they're very tachypnic and ronkerous and wheezy, and then they get the albuterol there, and they get more mad, and that kind of exacerbates the symptoms, and really, yeah, it, it creates, you, murky is the right word. You know, uh, I mean, when you look at the, the trials of albuterol and um, placebo, or steroids and placebo, or racemagepi and placebo. Or magic. Yeah, you know, yeah, magic, yeah. every kid, whether they received an intervention or not, gets better during the course of an ED stay. That's when, because the EDs are the e a wonderful, <laughs> efficient place where everything works, right? Yeah. You know, and so we, we know that just the process of being watched, getting good nasal suctioning, um, you know, good hydration, you know, maybe pushing parents to really hydrate. And we know that just being sort of observed, you know, and, and paid attention to actually improves these kids. Yeah. The magic of observation, a big booger getter. So, you know, I had uh, a, a, yeah. a great neurology professor in medical school said, you know, don't just do something, stand there. And I think that bronchiolitis is a sort of a good example of, of using that maxim to, you know, to, to provide care. Todd, thank you very much. Fantastic information on bronchiolitis. Clearly, it's an illness that is not going anywhere, both this season, next, and conceivably until all of us retire. Um, look for more information and evidence in the years to come about inhaled therapies. But for right now, is there anything that you recommend that everybody take a look at and read before they see their next patient with bronchiolitis? I think your best summary is the 2014 AAP guidelines for bronchiolitis. Yeah. That is going to be the best summary of the evidence. It's all graded in terms of how strong the recommendations are from the panel and what level of evidence there is out there. So if there's one document that you read, it is that one. Well, Todd, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Brad. It was great. Okay. This has been Brad Soboleski at PEM Tweets on Twitter. This is PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. You can learn more at PEMblog.com and educational research in pediatric emergency medicine. See you next time.